0: In A.D. 113, a Roman provincial governor named Pliny the Younger wrote a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan. And in this letter, Pliny sought the emperor's counsel on how he should treat former Christians who had recanted their Christianity to join the emperor's cult. Every Roman citizen was expected to worship the emperor as a god. And Pliny told Trajan in this letter that it was his practice to give Christians three opportunities to recant their faith. And if they would not, after those three opportunities, he had them executed. But in the face of such a threat, some did deny that they were Christians. And here's what Pliny wrote to Trajan about those who recanted. Pliny writes, They asserted that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. What did Christians do, apparently, in AD 113? Well, friends, they did what we do even today. They gathered, Pliny said, on a fixed day. We know that day to be Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that commemorates the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And what did they do, among other things, when they met, even back in 113 A.D.? They sang responsibly in the worship of Jesus Christ. Friends, did you know that when the church sings, something revolutionary happens? We declare that our allegiance is not given to any earthly idol or to any man-made God. We sing instead the anthems of the king. Our allegiance and worship belongs to Christ alone. No other religion in the world puts such an emphasis on corporate singing. Muslims don't gather to sing. Neither do Hindus, Buddhists, or Rastafarians. Christians are a singing people. We are a people who have been filled with joy by God's stunning mercy to us in Christ. And that joy finds a corporate outlet to express itself in the singing of the gathered church. It's always been this way, friends. When we sing, we participate in the very thing that God's people have been doing from the ancient times. From Moses and Israel's song that we read this morning in Exodus 15. To the gathered worship at the temple in Israel. To exiled Israel and Judah singing the dirge of their captivity away from the promised land. So important is singing in the, to the worship of God's people that the Bible even has its own songbook with 100, 150 songs included. Friends, our Lord Jesus led his disciples in singing a hymn together after the Last Supper before he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our God is keenly interested, not just that we worship Him, but how we worship Him. And by design, He has ordained that our corporate worship find a particular expression in singing. In fact, did you know this, that the command to sing is the most frequently repeated command in the entire Bible? The command to sing. 39 times the Bible commands Christians to sing. 32 additional times, the authors of scriptures declare that we will indeed sing to the Lord. What was true of God's old covenant people is true of his new covenant people in the local church. We're by our very nature a singing people. Friends, when you join the church, you join the choir. Now, I realize we come from all different places on this. Some of us are musical Others of us can't carry a tune in a really large bucket. Some of us by nature have an exuberant personality. Others here are painfully shy. Some of you can't wait to get to church to sing. Others of you grit your teeth through it. Some of you like a more traditional style of singing and worship. Others would prefer to jam out. But friends, no matter where you are in your skill or your background or your preferences, I trust by the end of this sermon, all of us will grasp a bit more of the biblical privilege and priority of congregational singing. And I trust that this sermon will motivate us to sing to the Lord with all of our hearts. Here's the main idea of of the sermon this morning. Again, not from a particular text, but kind of a composite of what the Bible says about our corporate singing together. Here's the main idea. Congregational singing reflects a church's love for God and each other. Congregational singing is a reflection. It's a reflection of our love not only for God but also for each other. In many ways, the New Testament presents a church's singing like it does prayer as a thermometer of our corporate health. A church's singing is in in many ways a litmus test of the degree of its joy in Christ and a a gauge of its God-centeredness, a meter of its understanding of the nature of the church even. So what does the New Testament say happens when the gathered church sings? Well, that's going to be the outline today. I see at least five things in the New Testament. I put these in in alliterative, alliterative form, so hopefully you can remember them more easily. Unfortunately, when I give my assistant Uh, The outline, it's before I've written the sermon. And so my apologies, uh, as it was last week, I'm going to tackle these in a bit different order than it's listed in your bulletin this morning. Number one, our congregational singing evidences the presence of the Spirit and the Word. Number two, it engages our affections with the truth. Number three, it exalts our triune God. Number four, it edifies the gathered church. And number five, it expresses... Our gospel unity. Let's look at that first point, that our congregational singing really is an evidence of the presence of the Spirit and the Word. Friends, there are two primary texts in the New Testament that directly address a church's congregational singing, and they really run parallel to each other. So we're going to look at them both together this morning. First of all, turn to Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, and once you land there, flip over a few pages to Colossians 3. We'll look at verse 16. Really, for each of these first four points of the sermon, you can keep your fingers between Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 because we're going to look at them several times this morning. Let's read together Ephesians 5.18 and 19. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's read from Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Notice the parallels. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So friends, when you, when you place these portions of Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossian church side by side, by side the parallels are obvious. Both passages speak of the church's worship in which the congregation sings psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Both passages indicate both a vertical and horizontal aspect to congregational singing, but there's a, a more subtle yet massively important parallel. Both Ephesians 5:19 and Colossians 3:16 indicate that a church's singing what's well, evidence of God's work. Among them, singing is the result of God's grace. Notice in both passages, friends, singing is not the command, is it? Singing is the byproduct. It's the accompanying practice of people as they obey the commands in these verses. So what are the commands? We'll look at again at, at Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then what will happen? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, the prohibition is clear enough, right? Believers aren't to give themselves over to alcohol as a dominating influence in our lives, for that leads to all types of debauchery. Instead, what should believers do in the church? Well, we should give ourselves to the influence of God the Holy Spirit. The phrase that's translated, be filled with the Spirit, is, it's a little tricky grammatically in the original Greek. Literally, the command is to be filled in the Spirit. Or we might say, be filled by the Spirit. It's not so much that the Holy Spirit is the content of the filling, like you know, filling up a, wa- a glass with water. Rather, it's that the Spirit of God is the agent that causes the church to be filled. Paul is saying that God the Spirit brings the church into the fullness of our relationship with God in Christ. And as the Spirit does that work in and among us, what happens? Well, he tells us the church sings. Just as, as love and joy are individual fruits of the Spirit's work in a believer, so, friends, love and joy are corporate fruits of the, of the, of the Spirit in the life of a church. And those fruits Those fruits are displayed in the songs of the congregation. So friends, how do we as believers obey this command? The command is clearly in the passive. Not fill yourself with the Spirit, as if that's possible, but be filled in the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent, yet we somehow have a responsibility to work toward that end. Well, here's where the parallel with Colossians 3 is super helpful. What does Colossians 3.16 say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Friends, in Colossians, instead of focusing on the presence of the Spirit, Paul focuses on what? The presence of the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? It's the message about the Messiah. It's the word that proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Paul's talking about the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save us in the Lord Jesus. And so what is the church to to do with this message of Christ? Colossians 3.16 tells us we're to let the word of Christ dwell among us richly. Friends, we are to let the gospel make its home here among us and not just as an, as an overnight guest, right? The gospel is not to be like a, a traveling guest that only stays with us for a time. We don't say to the gospel, hey, mi casa es su casa, right, but don't you dare open the side closet, right? And that part is inaccessible. Don't touch my fine china. Don't mess with my sound system. I've, I've calibrated it just the way that I want it. no. The text says, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Let the gospel take up a permanent residence among you, people of Redeeming Grace Church. It's a rich dwelling, a deep and abiding move-in of the gospel. Given the focus in the rest of verse 16 on the corporate worship of the collective body, I think it's safe to say, friends, that Paul is urging the church to, to put the message of Christ the word of the gospel, in the very center of the church's life together. It should constantly be at the center of our activities and our worship. So this morning in in, in our membership class, in RGC in three, as I understand it, Steve went over the elders' vision, the values that we as elders want our church to be marked by and known for. And what is number one on that list? It's an unrivaled gospel gospel. In other words, we don't want the good news of Jesus to have a competitor in our life together. It has the pride of place in the life of our church. We want to organize our church around the gospel and let it animate our life and ministry together. Why? Friends, because of what Colossians 3.16 says. Because we understand the gospel to be a fountainhead of blessing for the life of a church. Everything in our church flows downhill from the word of Christ at the top. In other words, friends, the best way to get at congregational singing is really indirectly. The best way to get at, get at good congregational singing isn't by the music leader getting up here and giving a rah-rah speech about how we really need to sing today. The way to get at good biblical congregational singing isn't to hire professional level musicians. Musicians. Oh, yeah, there's some practical ways that we can improve singing. But ultimately, the best road to the destination of good, biblical, life-giving congregational song is the proclamation of the word of Christ. The best road to the destination of congregational singing is by way of the word of Christ. It's for me to week after week open up this book and by God's grace and the help of His Spirit to unleash the message of what God has done for His people in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's friend, friends, it's to tell the old, old story again and again and again. It's to hold up in front of us Jesus' life and death and resurrection in our place to secure our redemption. So friends, what we're doing every week that that someone stands up here and preaches, you know what we're doing? We're dumping truth logs into the furnace of our corporate heart, right? That's what we're do- doing. We're taking the logs of the Bible and we're dumping them into the, to the furnace and praying that God the Spirit would ignite them and set them ablaze with affections for Christ. And you know what we're praying that then we would do throughout our week when we're not here on Sunday? We pray that the members of Redeeming Grace Church would keep stoking the fire. Keep stoking the fire of our affections by means of the word of Jesus. Read the gospel. Meditate on the word. Pray over the message of Christ. Talk about it. Share it with the lost. And then gather on Sunday to sing about it with all your heart. So for each of these points in the sermon, I'm going to try to give some practical implications for our congregational singing together. Here's one. If our singing together is the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit's work through the gospel, making its home among us, then surely our songs should be full of the word of Christ. Surely they too should be full of biblical truth. Beloved, each song that we sing, did you know that each song that we sing is really a sermon all its own? You'll remember the sermons that we sing far longer than you'll remember the sermons that I preach. That's just the reality. Things learned in song are remembered long. So we'd better make sure that we're singing songs that inform both our minds and our hearts with the word of Christ. Friends, we sing because our new hearts can't help but echo the word that's given us life. If there's any place where the word of God should literally, literally, physically, audibly reverberate among us, it is in our singing. They should be filled to the brim with the words, the paraphrases, and the ideas of the scripture, which we then sing to one another, to the Lord. Congregational singing evidences the presence of the spirit and the word. Number two, congregational singing engages our affections with the truth. Jonathan Edwards proposed that God gave us music wholly to excite and express religious affections. Likewise, Calvin wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion that congregational singing has the greatest value in kindling our heart to a true zeal and eagerness to pray. Friends, there's a reason biblically we're to accompany the ministry of the word with the ministry of singing. Reading and preaching the scripture is vital, no question. But singing, friends, touches a part of our inner person that a spoken word typically cannot. Music is particularly designed by God as the language of the affections. It gives our souls loves and joys a voice in a way that honors him. The psalmist seems to embody this idea when he wrote, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme in my song. Even in our our text that we just looked at, Ephesians 5.19, what does it say? Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16 likewise says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul didn't say, sing with your mouth. That much is obvious. He didn't say, even sing with your mind, although we should. Paul focused on singing with the operating center of what we love. Sing with your heart. Beloved, what we're doing when we sing together, we're grabbing biblical truth and we're setting our hearts to flight with it in ways that are appropriate to the truth that we're singing. When we sing together, guess what? It's hard to remain emotionally disengaged from the truth. Just as certain smells evoke strong associations and memories for us, so the sound of music both evokes and provokes the heart's joys, griefs, longings, hopes, I think I already said that, and sorrows. Our congregational singing ought to reflect the whole range of biblical affections. I think this is one reason Paul says sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's, it's hard to know exactly what Paul meant by Uh, these terms, but it's obvious that they include the entire range of Christian singing. So psalms certainly includes the Old Testament psalms, but in the New Testament that word is used more generally as a song of praise to God. The psalms certainly are the prototype, aren't they, for for the New Covenant songs of God's people. And what do we see in the psalms? Were all the psalms happy? Were they all designed to elicit affections of joy? No, not at all. In the Psalms, we find that God's people sing songs of praise and songs of lament. They sing songs of confession of sin and songs of thanksgiving for mercy, songs of instruction in the wisdom of God and songs of longing for home. It runs the full gamut of human experience as the people of God. And so should, friends, the repertoire of songs that churches sing today. We want our song repertoire here at Redeeming Grace Church to allow Christians to express not only joy in a godly fashion, but to express grief in a godly way. We want struggling Christians to find in our singing a helpful realism, not a put-on triumphalism where we pretend that everything is just good and happy all the time. Singing is how a congregation tunes its heart together across the entire range of biblically driven affections. Just a few weeks ago, we were, we were back in Louisville and singing with our former church, the body at 3rd Avenue Baptist, and we sang a hymn that day called All Glory Be to Christ. It's put to the tune of Auld Lang Syne, the, the, the song that we typically sing at New Year's, right? Um, And the first words of the song say this. So I'm going to sing it for you, which is very unusual for me to do, but you get the picture, okay? Could nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does build the house, in vain its builders strive. Two lines of of that song, and the Lord just broke me down. I started weeping, and not so much for joy. Lindsay afterwards said, were you you crying because you were so happy that, that Christ gets glory from your ministry? I said, not really. I was weeping as an ache in my soul. I don't know, Lord, if this is true of me. That if I leave no legacy behind me, and you get glory, that's all I want. So for the majority of that song, friends, I just listened and I let the the sound of that church minister to me as we sang, all glory be to Christ. This is what corporate singing does. It allows us together to engage our affections and to align them with the truth. Friends, we never want to be afraid of fervent and passionate congregational singing. In fact, I would argue with the Bible that we ought to sing in such a way that it's evident by our volume and by our manner and by our energy and engagement with our songs that we believe what we sing. We believe that Christ is the treasure of our hearts and the joy of our souls. Friends, often tepid singing is the evidence of tepid affections. Muted singing is proof of Of muted hearts toward the Lord. So, friends, let me encourage you come to each of our gatherings ready to sing your heart out to the Lord. Sing with everything that is in you about the worth of our God and what He's done for us in Christ. So, what if you come to our gathering with a cold heart? Has that ever happened to anyone? What do you do when you gather with a dry soul? Is the answer not to sing for fear of hypocrisy? No, friends, I would argue that because singing is designed by God to be a means of grace, you ought to sing while praying simultaneously that the Lord restores your soul. Calvin's advice is that we ought to sing till we feel our hearts ascending with our tongues. But there is a corresponding danger. Given the fact that music is the language of the heart's affections and emotions, there is a danger. Friends, we never want to use music to manipulate our emotions here in our gathering. The goal is is not a certain worship experience or the equivalent of a spiritual high. Much of modern corporate worship seems aimed at this, frankly. Amp the music to concert levels. Sing catchy songs with a driving beat and a great hook but void of theology. Beloved, the goal is not to raise our endorphin level, but to raise our affections. And to do that, truth must drive the bus, not emotions. I like to use the illustration of of an engine and a caboose on a train. Truth is the engine, and affections and emotions are the caboose. Our affections should follow where the truth leads us. And music helps to aid that response in our corporate life together. It engages our hearts with the truth. Number three, our congregational singing exalts our triune God. Friends, above all, our singing together is for the glory of God. The Bible could not be clearer about this. We sing together to corporately ascribe to God the glory that He's due. So look at Ephesians 5.19 again addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, Colossians 3.16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He is the object of the praises of His people. Friends, this is not unlike how humans make music in other spheres. Songwriters most often write music for people and things and places that they praise. They write songs about the object of their affection. What is a love ballad but a hymn of adoration to or about someone? Writing this part of the sermon got me thinking last night about the best love song of all time. And so, yes, I went to Spotify and wrote this part of the sermon accompanied by Whitney Houston singing, I will always love you. (laughs) We sing about places that we love. New York, New York. Carolina in my mind. Midnight train to Georgia. Sweet home Alabama. You get the point. Our music expresses our praise. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that the scriptures repeatedly exhort us to exalt the worth of our God through singing together. We sing to express our affections, in our, through our affections, our valuing of God's character in his works. There are so many Psalms that are great examples of this. Let me just read one Psalm 90, 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, both who God is and what He's done, all in a phrase, the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Friends, God's old covenant people praised God in song for who He had revealed Himself to be in both general revelation, in creation, and in special revelation, in the word. They sang in praise for his faithfulness and power displayed in his mighty acts of salvation throughout their history in keeping his promises to them. So friends, it would be jarringly unnatural if there were not a similar expectation of singing in the corporate worship of God's new covenant people, the local church. Friends, today, praise God, we do not strain our eyes to await the coming of the Savior. We look back rejoicing that Jesus came. He came to save sinners like us. He lived the life of perfect obedience that we failed so miserably to live as children of Adam. He died the death that we deserved in God's righteous accounting for sin and rebellion against him. He took our place. And in that moment of God's justice, he poured out his mercy on all those who will trust in him and turn from their sins. And yet death could not hold our Lord Jesus. On the third day, our, our King and God rose powerfully from the dead, and then He ascended to the right hand of the, of the Father where He reigns as Lord of all. Friends, of all the people in the world, we as Christians should be a singing people. We could keep on, we could keep on singing over the last two years through a death-riddled pandemic. Why? because we know the power of death was vanquished by the risen lamb. We believers often sing through eyes misted by the tears of sorrow, because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our God loves us with an unbreakable love in his son. We gladly sing the praises of Zion, because we know that this world is not our home. The author of Hebrews picks up this idea in Hebrews 13, 14, and 15. He writes, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips acknowledging his name. Well, friends, this sacrifice of praise surely includes more than singing, but it cannot mean less than singing. Each time we sing, it's like we together place a sacrifice of worship on the altar of our collective hearts, We don't offer the fruit of our crops or the fruit of our flocks like in the Old Testament. We offer the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name and His salvation. Friends, the implications for our singing in this point are many. First of all, our congregational singing is a vital part of our worship every time we gather. Friends, our singing together is not the warm-up or the prelude to the sermon. As, as, as important as the preaching is, it is not just merely the warm-up to the good stuff. No, our singing together is an essential part of our corporate worship. So, beloved, let me encourage you as a practical thing. Be here on time. Be here on time. In fact, maybe even consider getting here a little bit early. Or even coming to our discipleship class so you're here well in enough time. So that when you sit down, your heart is, is ready to engage. You're not coming in frazzled or, or hurried. You're coming in ready to worship in the singing together. Another implication thats that we're going to steer away here at Redeeming Grace Church. We're going to steer away as far as we can from a performance orientation in our gatherings. And this is one reason that we don't often have special music like solos and, and things like that. Very, they're very often because While those type of things can be worshipful and edifying, they tend to trend toward listening to a performance rather than participating in worship. Friends, this is one reason we don't dim the lights in the seats while spotlighting the stage. We don't want to create the illusion that the stage is where the primary action happens. And friends, that's fine and good for a concert, no problem, but not for corporate worship. The main action of our time together in the singing is out here in the congregation. So let's keep the attention there. Likewise, we want our musicians to strive for excellence in musicianship, but excellence is only valuable insofar as it supports the singing of the congregation. In fact, when the New Testament talks about music in the church, it doesn't discuss what instruments we should use and not use. The the New Testament doesn't even really mention instruments at all. We can sing with a full band, as we often do, Or we can sing a bit shorthanded like we did this morning, right? Thank you guys for your, your ministry with us. We can sing with one or with many. In fact, the primary instrument of the congregation's worship is not a guitar or a bass or a cajon. The primary instrument in New Covenant music is the collective voice of the church worshiping the Lord together. This is one reason, friends, we try to choose songs here at Redeeming Grace that are easily singable by multiple generations. Here's a general principle that I try to operate by when I choose our songs. The more a song depends on the musical accompaniment and cannot be sung by children in the car on the way home, the more performance-oriented and less congregational it probably is. Now, that's not an absolute rule. I get it. That's a little bit of a you know, a culturally sensitive rule just to, knowing what we do about, about music. But, but friends, if a song is not easily memorable and singable by a child, well, maybe we ought to include a better song and choose a better song. The point is we sing to exalt our God. We glorify him with our sacrifice of praise. Number four, we sing together to edify the gathered church. We sing together to edify the gathered church. Notice in these passages that congregational singing doesn't only have a vertical dimension. It has a profoundly horizontal one. Ephesians 5.19 again. What does it say? Be filled with the Spirit, addressing who? One another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your, to the Lord with your heart. Friends, as we sing to the Lord in worship, we simultaneously sing to each other. We encourage one another in the truths that we confess and so build each other up. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts to God. Friends, a good case could be made from Colossians 3.16, from the grammar in the original Greek, that this verse actually should be translated teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In fact, that's how it's translated in the King James Version and in the NIV. I think there's a good case for that, that we, the teaching and admonishing one another here, what Paul had in mind is very similar to what he wrote in Ephesians five nineteen, addressing one another, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Friends, we don't merely teach one another in our sermons and in our classes and in our house-to-house groups. We teach each other through our singing. Paul emphasizes this edification principle in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, he was instructing the church about the practice of tongues speaking in the gathering. And he, he wrote to them and he said, listen, if there's not an interpreter It's not edifying for the building up of the church because no one understands what you're saying. As a comparison, Paul uses the example of singing. Here's what he said. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. In other words, what's at stake in our gatherings, friend, isn't just my own spirit being affected, your own spirit being affected, but intelligible worship for the good of everyone. Worship that is thoughtful and truthful and edifying. In fact, Paul summarizes this whole discussion by exhorting the Corinthians, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, listen to this, strive to excel in building up the church. You want the Spirit to be evident in your midst? You want the Spirit to be manifest and at work? Strive to excel in building up the church. Beloved, that admonition applies to our singing too. It applies by what we sing and in the way we sing. We ought to strive to excel in edifying the church. Let me ask you, let me ask you, friends. Do you think of your singing in our congregational worship here at Redeeming Grace as part of your ministry to the rest of the body? Do you sing in such a way as to encourage and strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ? You say, well, listen, man. Nobody wants to hear me sing. Well, friend, with all the pastoral love I can muster, what a cop-out that is. Okay? The Scripture nowhere commands us to sing skillfully, but to sing loudly. Nowhere will you find an exhortation to sing with a beautiful sound, but to make a joyful noise. Friends, give me the gravelly tones of a brother that doesn't sing all that well, but loves to belt out the truths of the gospel grace. Right? Give me the off-key, best effort of a sister who wouldn't win a Grammy by a long stretch, but whose heart explodes in praise to the lamb that was slain. Friend, I trust you'll take this ministry of edification seriously. You just don't know how the Lord might use it. Perhaps when we sing together, great is thy faithfulness, it doesn't particularly land with you, but... By singing it loudly and joyfully, you're holding up the faith of the friend standing next to you who, who, who can't quite remember what God's faithfulness feels like anymore. By singing with all your heart, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, you not only remind yourself of God's great mercy in Christ, but you also strengthen the heart of the sister across the room whose conscience that particular Sunday morning is racked by guilt. When singing it as well with my soul, perhaps you look out and you see the middle-aged brother struggling with discouragement over his fight against anger, but he's now rising. His voice, his voice rises to shout with you. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought! My sin, not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord, O my soul. Friends, don't take lightly this ministry of edification and strengthening one another in song. Singing together forms our hearts and encourages our faith, reminding us, friends, that we are not on the road to Zion alone. We sing together even as we walk that road together. See, friends, congregational singing isn't just an evidence of grace. It is a means of grace. It's not just an evidence of what the Spirit is doing us through the Word of Christ. It helps us cultivate that among us. So here at RGC, we do a few things to help us remember not only that we sing to the Lord, but we sing to each other. Again, just another practical reason. This is a wisdom application. It's not thus says the Lord. Just another reason why we keep the house lights up. We want to look around. Okay, We want to be able to, to stand in the gathering and look around and see joy on each other's faces and, and to watch each other worship the Lord. Friends, this is why we keep the sound of the instruments at a, at a reasonably low level. Why? Because we want to be able to hear each other sing because God has told us through his word speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How can we do that and strengthen one another if we can't hear each other because the bass guitar is so amped? The tendency in churches these days, I think, is to try to fill up that quiet void in the building with amplified instrumental sound. But friends, I actually think that practice discourages good congregational singing. If you can't hear yourself and others, then you probably end up singing quieter. We want the instrumental levels to support our singing, not dominate it. This principle of congregational edification is why we'll often have the instruments just drop out altogether. We did that today on the doxology. We'll sing a a stanza or or two a cappella. Friends, when we do that, that is not your cue to back off, and you did not do that this morning, so thank you. That is not your cue to back off because you don't have the support of the instruments anymore. When we sing a cappella, that's your cue to sing all the louder and speak to one another. And teach one another through our singing. We want to fill this space with the sound of our church family singing together. Lastly, number five. I don't know that I've ever preached a five-point sermon. (laughs) Lastly, number five. Congregational singing expresses our gospel unity. If you think about it, congregational singing is one of the few activities in our gathering that the church does all together in the same way and at the same time. We certainly participate corporately in the entire gathering, but not in the same way. So in the reading of Scripture, like Daniel read earlier, typically a leader reads and the congregation listens. The same with prayer and preaching. But friends, singing in the church is by its very nature congregational. We confess the truth together. We lift up our hearts and praise together. We sing to one another together. So when you walk in the door of this place and the service begins, it's like a switch should flip from individual to corporate. The point of of music in church is not that you and I can have a a private spiritual experience of the presence of God as as, others up here on the stage, sing and perform, and you just kind of listen and occasionally join in. No, the point is that your voice combines with dozens of others as one in praise to God and proclaiming His grace to His people. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. In Romans 15, 5, it's really a prayer, a benediction. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, again, like with that Hebrews passage, there are certainly more applications and ways uh, than singing that the church fulfills the vision of this prayer but friends, you cannot help but see congregational singing as a huge part of how that happens. In fact, if we were to keep reading in Romans 15, Paul sets forth a vision of Christ as the hope of the Gentiles, the risen Jesus leading the peoples in songs to the Lord for his mercy. Beloved, in so much of our life together as a church, I I feel like we're swimming all the time against the current of of our culture, our congregational singing really is no different. Just, just think about how our consumer culture affects the way that we interact with music. More and more, music functions in our culture like a personal soundtrack. I set my Spotify preferences the way that I want them. And then Spotify then even makes me personalized playlists based on what I like and what I prefer. And then I pop in my AirPods and I listen to my personalized personalized playlist that Spotify made for me while I'm working out or while I'm studying or while I'm walking around the grocery store so I don't have to talk to anyone else, but it's just me and my music. Friends, none of that is wrong. I do it all the time. But that is not how music works at church. We don't come here to consume music. We come to create it together. We don't come even to listen to a band and occasionally sing along like at a concert. No, we are the band. And guess what? Being part of the church band requires hard work. It requires hard work to give up our preferences rather than insisting on them. We're so used to crafting our own soundtracks that it takes effort to remind ourselves that when we step into the church, we push play on the soundtrack of the congregation. And in fact, we come become part of that soundtrack together. So friends, ultimately, we do not unite here at Redeeming Grace Church around a particular style of music or a particular genre of songs. We unite around the gospel and we happily submit our preferences for the good of the whole body. So friends, if you like a certain hymn that we sing in the order of service, wonderful. Sing that out loudly and joyfully. And if you don't like a song that we sing in our service, I'm so sorry, but sing loudly and joyfully. Anyway, why? Because most likely someone down the road, from, the road from you really does like that hymn. And your singing joyfully helps bind your hearts together in love with that person. So beloved, let's sing. Let's sing as the evidence of the Spirit's work among us through the word of Christ. Let's sing to engage our affections with the truth, Let's sing to exalt our triune God and to edify each other, knowing that as we do, we express our gospel unity. May God be glorified in it. Today, rather than closing with prayer, we're going to close by singing a prayer in worship to the Lord. We're going to sing the doxology together. So grab your bulletin. It's at the end of that first hymn. All Creatures of Our God and King Steve is coming up to play the, the final hymn. We will feast in the house of Zion, but first, let's stand and let's sing the doxology together. Let's fill this room up. Here's our note. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All